So as we, uh, as we continue our journey in the lectionary through the Gospel of Mark, come today to chapter 10, which kind of serves as a, a kind of dividing line, maybe a mile marker, if you will. Because if you remember, in the first nine chapters, we've seen our Lord initially carry on a very large and very public ministry, which he's kind of slowly been narrowing down to a season of teaching designed primarily, not exclusively, but primarily, for just his own men. And from there, even though he'll continue to teach and... Can you turn on these lights? I wonder why I can't. But can you grab the lights? Even though he's going to continue to teach and to travel, uh, his movements and his ministry become a lot more dialed in to his ultimate destination, as we're going to see today. Uh, see him leaving Galilee for the last time and turning his face toward Jerusalem and to the cross that awaits him there. So if you're following along in your own Bibles, and I hope you are, we're looking at Mark chapter 10. And I'm going to be reading you the first 12 verses. So Mark chapter 10. <clears throat> uh, and he, meaning Jesus, left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And brothers and sisters, that's the word of the Lord to us today. Let's pray. God, our Father, we know we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from you. And so we ask you to take now what we've read and heard, that you would nourish us today, Father, in the ways of eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who is the true bread from heaven, and in whose name we pray. Amen. So, um, you know, when I was reading that section on divorce, it kind of reminded me of a, a story that I read about a guy who... Uh, when he divorced his wife, she, she in, insisted on dividing everything up 50-50. Right? She, she took half the dishes, he took half the dishes. She took half the furniture, he took half the furniture. And he said she, she even insisted that she wanted to divide half of their pets. So, so she wanted half the cats, he got half the cats. Right? She wanted half the fish, he got half the fish. And he said... It got right down to the point where she even wanted to, to divide the rabbits. But he said, I stood my ground and told her, look, now you're just splitting hairs. All, all my jokes are not that bad, I promise. <laughs> but, but the truth is that, that breakups, right, whether it's, it's a marriage or a business relationship or with extended family, uh, they're always hard. Right? Uh, division always hurts. 
And, and this division, the one between Jesus and the religious leaders, was getting wider and wider all the time. And it didn't just spring up today with the Pharisees' question about divorce. Now, the actual first stress fractures in their icy relationship began all the way back in Mark chapter 2 when Jesus claimed the authority to forgive the sins of the paralytic. You remember that story? And rather than accepting Jesus' words of pardon as a gift from God, uh, the Pharisees separated themselves from their own Messiah. And that separation quickly morphed into outright opposition. And then by the time we get to Mark chapter 3, they're already seeking ways to destroy Jesus. Beginning with asking him culturally and politically charged questions designed to lose him credibility with the people and to put him crossways with the Jewish and with the Roman authorities. So hence today's question on divorce. And just to give you a way, uh, by way of a little background, uh, this geographic region that Jesus is moving into now as he's kind of heading down the home stretch of his ministry and on his way to Jerusalem and to uh, endure the cross, this area is under the control of a guy named Herod Antipas. He's a guy who uh, knew a little something about marriage woes and about bothersome prophets like Jesus and his cousin John the Baptist. So if you still have your Bibles open, if you look at Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 17, this will give you a little context. Uh, for Herod had sent soldiers to arrest and imprison John the Baptist as a favor to Herodias. Uh, she had been his brother Philip's wife, but Herod had married her. John had been telling Herod, it's against God's law for you to marry your brother's wife. And so Herodias bore a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But without Herod's approval, she was powerless, for Herod respected John. And knowing that he was a good and holy man, he protected him. Herod was greatly disturbed whenever he talked with John, but even so, he liked to listen to him. Herodias' chance finally came on Herod's birthday. He gave a party for his high government officials, army officers, and the leading citizens of Galilee. And then his daughter, also named Herodias, came in and performed a dance that greatly pleased Herod and his guests. Ask me for anything you like, the king said to the girl, and I will give it to you. He even vowed, I will give you whatever you ask up to half my kingdom. She went out and asked her mother, what should I ask for? And her mother told her, ask for the head of John the Baptist. So now the Bible doesn't give us a whole ton of details about this Herodias, but we do know from history uh, that Herodias, not the, the mom, not the daughter, uh, had abandoned her wealthy and powerful first husband, Philip, for his even wealthier and more powerful half-brother, Herod, in violation of the law of God in the Torah, which forbids a man from marrying his brother's wife if that brother is still alive. Uh, and this wasn't the first marriage for Herod either. Uh, Herod had divorced his previous wife, who was the daughter of the king of Arabia, which isn't actually against Jewish law since she was a Gentile. Uh, but it was a big headache for him because doing it caused war with her people and an ultimate military defeat for Herod. Uh, but the reason he divorced her anyway was because he met Herodias on one of his trips to Rome and he just really wanted to bring her home. Sounds like a bad soap opera, right? <laughs> uh, and then this is where John the Baptist enters the picture and he basically calls Herod out uh, on the way he's living and the, the life of immorality that he's involved in. And it gets him thrown into prison and eventually killed for his trouble. And so now, here comes his cousin Jesus, right? 
And guess what the Pharisees want to ask Jesus about? Divorce. Right? They wanted him to take a public stand on this political hot potato of whether or not divorce was permissible and how and when to go about it. Because, hey, if, you know, if they played their cards right, um, maybe Herod would hear about it. And maybe he'd take care of their Jesus problem the same way he'd taken care of their John the Baptist problem. So, so Mark is careful to point out here the Pharisees' motive that they came with in order to test him, in order to test Jesus. And they're, they're probing him. They're, they're, they're jabbing at him verbally. They're, they're trying to stir up trouble and trying to catch him in saying something which would draw considerable interest on the part of the people and catch the attention of Herod and put Jesus at the center of a national and regional debate. And so by their question and the way they posed it, they're trying to get Jesus to make a decisive choice between these two views which were widely held on divorce. And in his day, they were actually represented by uh, kind of two main schools uh, of thought in Israel. Uh, one teaching was from the great Rabbi Hillel, who based his teaching on the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 24 that said, a man could divorce his wife if he found any indecency in her. And the great teacher Hillel interpreted that to mean anything that was displeasing to the husband in any way at all. So if she made bad coffee, he could divorce her. If she didn't keep the house clean, he could divorce her. She got angry at him or became argumentative or, or had a bad attitude in his opinion, whatever, he could divorce her. So it wasn't, it wasn't no-fault divorce. It was any old fault will do divorce in favor of the husband. And needless to say, that view was pretty popular with the fellas. Now, the opposing view, the opposite view of that was from Rabbi Shammai. This is another great Hebrew rabbi who taught that divorce was to be strictly limited to actual indecency, namely either marital infidelity or apostasy from the true faith. So that, that's the issue. That's the background uh, that our, our Lord is confronted with today in the Pharisees' question. And, and we dare not misread it, too, because they really didn't care about this issue of divorce. Right? What they cared about was baiting a trap for Jesus. They aren't really interested in learning the truth about this really important spiritual matter. They just wanted to find a way to sideline and to silence Jesus. And what I want you to notice is that Jesus, in his answer, gives them back way more than these kind of loony teachers of the law had anticipated, doesn't he? As he develops two really important points that we dare not miss, uh, points that affect you uh, in every area of life, whether you're married or single or divorced or widowed, and those are, what is God's purpose and are you living in it? What is God's purpose and are you living in it? And our Lord, in his answer back to his listeners and us today, first uh, goes to God's law at Mount Sinai with Moses. And then he goes back even further, all the way back to the time of our creation and God's original intention for his people. Uh, and this is important because, you know, I think if we're honest when it comes to, you know, moral issues like divorce, it's easy for us to get confused between our own personal opinions uh, and our own feelings about something and the way they actually are in reality, right? Kind of like uh, the guy who was recounting a story to his buddies about the day he came home from the golf course and he found his wife had left a note on the refrigerator. The note said, uh, it's not working, can't take it anymore, gone to a hotel. The guy said, so I, I opened the fridge and the light came on, the beer was cold, there was definitely room for another six-pack or two, and she never mentioned going on a vacation, so I just don't know what she was talking about. 
So I guess that wasn't really the best example of good communication, was it? But, but in, in his response, in Jesus' response to the Pharisees, he was crystal clear and direct. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he, meaning Moses, wrote you this commandment. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so they're no, no longer two, but one flesh. And what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So you see, the permission that Moses gave to divorce was never uh, the way it was supposed to be. From the beginning, God had established marriage as a permanent union. So in other words, uh, humanity, like we always do, had taken the good gift of God, like marriage. A gift with a definite design and a purpose and a blessing attached to it. And what did we do? We turned it upside down and ruined and abused it. Which, when you think about it, really has been Jesus' underlying message in the last four chapters. Uh, and that underlying message is this. And we talked about this before in Sunday School and Bible Study. Uh, that violation of purpose is the essence of evil. Ravi Zacharias used to say that all the time. Violation of purpose is the essence of evil. I want you to think about that. You understand what I mean by that? It's like... Uh, Jesus said last week about, you know, cutting off hands and, and feet and gouging out eyes that lead to sin. Well, hands and feet and eyes are all good things, right? I, I'm, I'm pretty attached to all of mine. But, but they pale in comparison to living out God's plan for us and his design in the world. So God has a purpose in marriage. We violate that purpose that leads to sin. Right? Just ask Adam and Eve. And it's the same way, though, with every area of life, right? Whether it's money or, or food or sex or authority or family relationships or entertainments, they all have beneficial purposes, but the violation of any of their intended purposes has devastating consequences, doesn't it? Consequences that cause division and that result in sin. And it's usually because our human nature is never satisfied. And so no matter... Uh, what we have or how good we have it, uh, it never seems to be enough, right? We're always looking for that next big thing, right? The, the, the greener grass on the other side, the, the one that got away, whether it was the, the perfect woman or the dream career or, or that sweet ride or, or catching that once-in-a-lifetime Pacific swordfish, right? And, and we're all kind of like that in varying degrees. Everybody is searching for something. We're all wired with appetites. We just naturally long for satisfaction despite the fact that that is something that our fallen world cannot provide but somehow that doesn't stop people from looking for it does it right we we search some of us for pleasure others for possessions some for position and power and others for popularity but uh, most folks are never satisfied and so we're divided right that, those things make us divided from our spouses and from our siblings they separate us from our parents and from our, our kids and our co-workers. They make us estranged from our neighbors and even sometimes from our co-laborers in the kingdom. But praise God, his whole reason for sending Jesus into the world was to heal all of those fractures that we've caused and to reunite all of those factions that we like to divide ourselves into by redeeming and restoring the intended purpose of everyone and everything in this world. And by doing it, in himself. As Galatians 3 says, 
In Christ's family, there can be no division into Jew and non-Jew, into slave and free, male and female. Among us, you're all equal. And that is, we are all in a common relationship with Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, the best picture of that relationship, the preeminent example of this loving perfection was intended to be the covenant relationship of marriage. Like it says in Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This, is, this mystery is profound, and I am saying this to refer to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And so the imagery, the, the symbolism of marriage here is applied to, to Christ and to his bride, the body of believers, to the church. Because God created marriage in the garden with Adam and Eve to be a, a metaphor of his relationship with his people. A relationship to the church, but you know, the entrance of sin into the world has so confused that metaphor that sometimes now it's, it's almost unintelligible. John Piper, if you follow him, put it like this. He said, uh, the, the fall in the garden ruined the harmony of marriage because it twisted a man's loving headship into hostile domination in some men and lazy indifference in others. And he says, it twisted a woman's intelligent, willing submission into manipulative obsequiousness in some women and brazen insubordination in others. And I'll leave you couples to figure out which one is who. So you can just don't do it. Do it after church. Right. But marriage is tough, right? And none of us are perfect. And what do we do? We turn around and pick another imperfect person to marry. Right? Like, the, like the lady over in, in Coral Springs, Florida, who was uh, applying for a job at a Florida lemon grove. And, and the owners were kind of looking at her resume and thought she seemed way too overqualified. She had a, had a liberal arts degree from USF. She had a lot of high-paying, white-collar jobs. And so the foreman said to her, well, ma'am, you know, you've done a lot of big things, but I have to ask you, have you had any actual experience picking lemons? And without missing a beat, the lady said, I sure do. I've, I've been divorced three times, and I'm dating a guy online right now who's a Nigerian prince. You like that one, Dad. <laughs> so she had some experience picking lemons. But you know, the truth is, because of sin, we're continually picking lemons, aren't we? In this world, this fallen world, whether it's cars or jobs or cities to live in or soulmates to live with. Uh, that's why, says one Christian counselor, I never try to convince husbands they should love their wives because their wives deserve it. He said, I also never try to convince wives that they should submit to their husbands because their husbands deserve it. The fact is, they don't. Neither party. We're all sinners and none of us deserve anyone else's love or submission but we love and obey anyway because there is one who is worthy 
one who is worthy of our loving submission, that is Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God who pursued us in love and willingly submitted to the death of the cross to save a people who didn't want him and a people who could do absolutely nothing to save themselves. That's why the Bible says in Romans 5, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we're reconciled shall we be saved by his life. And more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received that reconciliation. Because, as 1 Corinthians says, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. Be that the temptation to divide into groups or to divorce or or to do whatever else our our selfish little hearts prompt us to do. And here's how we overcome. This This is the solution. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. A way, brothers and sisters, that's embodied in the marriage supper of the Lamb that we get a foretaste of at the table today. Because it's not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ. And it's not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ. And brothers and sisters, because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body. For we all share the one loaf. And I invite you to join me there today. Let's pray together. God, our Father, is truly right in our greatest joy always and everywhere to give you thanks and praise, especially in this Holy Supper uh, celebrated today, Lord, in every tongue and time zone in this world, uh, recalling that perfect sacrifice once offered on the cross by our Lord Jesus Christ and asking you by the joy of his resurrection and an expectation of his coming again that you unite us in your truth and love so we can confess your name and sit together at one table. So come now, Lord, and continue your transforming work in this time, in this place, that eyes may be opened, that hearts may be radically changed by the good news of the gospel. And so remembering now your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we take from your creation this bread and this wine, and we ask you to pour out your spirit upon us and upon these your gifts, that this meal may be for us a communion with our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray.